Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Countless words have been written and said about the daiquiri, and if I were to choose just one, I might go with deceptive. Because for drinkers, the daiquiri should be easygoing, a no-brainer of a cocktail. But for bartenders, this is a concoction to labor over, painstakingly, until the perfect personal preference of ingredients and ratios have been reached. The duality of the daiquiri extends to its simple yet complex list of ingredients, a holy trinity of rum, lime, and sugar that opens up a world of possibilities and a lot of room for error. This then is a drink that requires us to dial into the details as much as any so far in Cocktail College. And to do that, today we have William Elliott, managing partner at Maison Premier. Will first turned his attention to the daiquiri during a time when many in the industry were still agonizing over stirred, spirit-forward drinks. And to hear him speak about the daiquiri today, not to mention some of the finer aspects of bartending, from shaking to fine straining, is to listen to an individual every bit as enamored with the drink that he was 10 years ago. If the daiquiri is, as many people believe, the acid test of a bartender, consider Will the ideal professor. Awesome. Welcome to Vine Pears Cocktail College and welcome William Elliott to the studio. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's, it's a nice day in New York. It's a wonderful day in New York today. It's a wonderful day every day in New York, but especially today. It's a good day for a shaken drink. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. And, you know, there's one thing here that people who recognize your name or people that know the bar that you're mainly associated with or most famously Maison Premier might be a little bit shocked today because I think if anything they might have expected to see your name crop up in prior episodes perhaps the Martini or the Sazerac and I'd love to say that you you know you guys at Maison make two of the finest versions of those two cocktails here in New York City so you definitely could have been a guest for them so thank you but the thing is we do like to throw a spanner in the works here at Cocktail College, and we're going to cover the daiquiri. And that might be some expect, somewhat unexpected for some folks, but having had conversations with you previously, I know this is a drink that you care deeply about, and also it has a great connection to Maison Premier. So let's kick it off by telling us all about that. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the daiquiri, I think, for us and me specifically, in the early days of Maison Premier, which would be 2011, 12, 13, um, it was one of the first drinks that sort of crept up in our consciousness as far as a classic cocktail that had not yet really been reworked or really had a lot of love shown to it. Um, obviously, you know, I, I always feel like that was sort of the tail end of the cocktail renaissance, if you can call it such. And drinks like the Old Fashioned and the Manhattan and the Martini had already seen a lot of love. Um, but more often than not, citrusy, refreshing um, 
acid-driven drinks weren't really uh, seeing the light of day, I felt like, in a lot of cocktail bars. So mm-hmm. um, a couple of close friends um, who you know may or may not have been bartenders at the time um, and I would kind of debate, discuss um, what we saw in the ideal daiquiri. And, you know, at the beginning of that time, I mean, I don't, I can't even tell when I had my first, you know, excellent daiquiri. You Mm -hmm. know, I I definitely had some balanced ones, but nothing that really um, sort of struck you as being more significant than any other sour, right? Yeah. Um, So I just started to play around with different combinations of rum. Uh, Obviously, like, you know, back in the early 2010s, like Smith and Cross was like a huge deal. I tried that. It didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I tried several other combinations, uh, you know, with varying degrees of success, tried different amounts of lime and sugar and such. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get into the details. And and what was it that drew you to that? Because in general, in trends, right, there tends to be the action and the reaction. And it stands to reason, right, that the, the early days of the cocktail renaissance would be those boozy, stirred, spirit forward drinks that you described there. And this does seem like the natural reaction, but what was it that drew you to that at that time? Did you want to just be contrarian or was it just something that you were like, no, it yeah. really appealed to you? Well, it's a fine line between being a uh, trend setting and contrarian. I guess. <laughs> but I do, I mean, I, I don't like to think of myself as contrarian. I, I do like to, I just get bored, I think, you know, mm-hmm. in a paradigm or something. So stirred drinks, um, you know, just to me struck a limited dynamic range of mm-hmm. flavor and also compatibility with food and, yeah. uh, you know, just the excessive amount of liquor, yeah. <laughs> the, the overarching ABV of these things are, you know, And I think dangerous. it's an important reminder too for folks, because like I mentioned at the top, there's that great association with Maison with, you know, classics such as the Martini and the Sazerac and New Orleans and Absinthe and Oysters. These are the things you're known for. But always there's always been this strong presence of, of, of juicier, lighter, refreshing drinks on the menu. And that stands to reason with your with your food offerings. Absolutely. And, you know, just, you know, martinis will always be there. Mm-hmm. You can always come and get a martini or a Sazerac. Hopefully. I almost think, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> uh, I always think of them almost as a meal unto themselves. And, and a cocktail, to me, kind of bumps into food in a weird, most cocktails bump into food in a weird, awkward way. Mm-hmm. So they should either be a precursor or, or an aftermath. And, um, you know, but the exception being, if there is one, that it would be lighter, more acid-driven cocktails. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, people, I think that I did enjoy sort of springing the daiquiri as a surprise onto people who thought that they were going to get a very, like, you know, brooding, Mm -hmm. uh, sophisticated 20-ingredient stirred drink. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and if we were going to gift somebody a cocktail or send a round of cocktails to a table, you know, instead we would try a daiquiri. Amazing. And, yeah, you know, less is more. And also something that really stands out to me here is that the daiquiri has now become, since that period that we're talking about, has become this idea of the bartender test. Like you're testing out a bartender skill with this one drink, whether it's, I don't know, maybe a job interview. I'm not sure if that even happens sure. or, or just like maybe bellying up to the bar and seeing what someone's kind of bartending chops are. But essentially we're talking three simple ingredients. So that stands to reason. But why, how did that come about? And, and why do you think this drink in, uh, in particular? 
Well, I think that, you know, once upon a time in New York, there were only a handful of passionate bartenders throwing their, themselves at cocktails and thinking about it every day. Um, and obviously that number is exponentialized in the time since then. Yeah. Um, but in that time, you know, I think it was kind of always a, a little thing where you would go around to each other's bars and poke and prod and figure out what they were up to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some bars would impress you with one drink, but not so much with another. And, you know, I think that most bars out there would want to be impressive with all their drinks. And we did. Um, and I'm not saying we got there right away. It was a process. Um, but during that time, you know, there was just a lot of across the bar debate with other notable members of the industry at that really kind of seminal time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would debate, you know, just every detail. What what style rum, you know, is it even okay to entertain the idea of using agricole in mm-hmm. a daiquiri? Right. <laughs> you know, like, Absolutely. Wild. That was a real, real big deal back then. And then, um, of course, just getting out of the sort of what we call two and three quarter, three quarter idiom. Right. Um, and just playing around with compressing sugar and all that kind of stuff, which we probably Amazing. get into more. We can absolutely geek out about that today. <laughs> but tell me, therefore, I'm going to use a pun here. <laughs> Sorry. I'm but braced. I'm the sitting. acid test, therefore. Yes. What are you expecting <laughs> from that incredibly well executed daiquiri? What are you looking for? Well, <clears throat> obviously, it's hard to quantify flavor in language. <laughs> um, I try all the time. And mm-hmm. if you were to see some of the notes I take, it's really pretty far out there. Um, <laughs> I, we did a Ramos uh, Gin Fizz uh, panel the other day, unrelated at Maison Premier. And somebody said, like, well, how much do you expect to taste orange flower water? And I don't know how to answer that, really, because... I just want everything to taste more, like, right? Don't we just want to amplify flavor? I mean, balance is balance, but don't we want to amplify flavor? And so to me, I just really wanted to, um, I wanted to, obviously to be balanced, I should go without saying, but I wanted to taste a lot of boosted flavor from each of the three legs of the drink, if you will. Right. So whatever rum, it needs to be expressive. It needs to be really excellent, um, you know, pr- producer-focused, uh, you know, speaking like it comes from a place kind of rum. Right. Um, for the sugar, um, we ended up on going on a, on a heavier simple syrup uh, just to reduce the amount of water and therefore kind of like dilution. Um, and for lime, we bumped up lime all the way to a full ounce. So Amazing. it's kind of this idea of like compression and contraction sort of, and uh, just to build the whole mm-hmm. impact of the first sip, right? And what you're looking for, therefore, is balance, but each ingredient shining, yes. being equally present, and yeah, yeah, making you aware of its presence. And for Maison Premier, it's a very specific style, or what we ended up doing ended up being, I think, a... a have a, you know, it has its own personality. I don't think that these are the only ways to enjoy classic cocktails, the right. way that we make them. However, they are our way. And our way is big and bold on flavor. We, you know, we don't have a sprawling food menu. So we want you to be impacted by that first sip, whether it be a jungle bird or a martini yep. or a daiquiri, whatever. Um, we want it to be big and brash and bold. Mm-hmm. And so, you have to, you know, obviously curate your spirits mm-hmm. appropriately and ch- tweak your technique appropriately to achieve those things. And that is really, you know, what this show is all about is going beyond the recipe. And you mentioned there too, like, there can be no one recipe. There has to be, 
But there also can't be, especially when we're using a base ingredient, base spirit like rum. Rum has such a profound range of styles and profiles. So let's start by looking at that rum and, and tell me your journey with that and your considerations specifically for making daiquiris. I think that rum at Maison Premier um, was an early I won't, secondary focus to absinthe, yeah. I would say. Um, you know, it, obviously the amount of rum available now is just over the top. It's insane. There's just new, amazing rum coming at you from every angle. When we opened, like I <laughs> cited earlier, Smith and Cross was like the most, uh, you know, unctuous over the top rum you could find. And obviously, uh, shortly around then JM came out, uh, in the U S yeah. market and stuff. Um, but early on we were, we adapted the idea that you needed to have sort of families of rum style on the shelf and re good representation of different styles. So we, uh, you know, whereas, uh, most bars at that time, I felt like we're just strictly adhering to like, you know, an Eldorado three year or, or a plantation or some sort of, um, Blanc rum that was more neutral sort of in character. Uh, not to say that Eldorado isn't, doesn't have flavor, but um, we were instantly kind of more drawn towards, you know, Rum JM, Rum Nissan, Ed Hamilton's rums, things yep. like that. Um, and those were the real forerunners in my mind of flavorful terroir, if not island-driven rum. Yes. So um, we, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was just kind of endlessly going through every combination. I was, you know, splitting an ounce and a half to half an ounce of this rum and, you know all sorts of uh, permutations of that. And then um, finally, I don't know if we're going to have a big reveal, Tim, but <laughs> we ended up on... Uh, Please, drum roll. <laughs> we ended up on our house recipes. Now the time. Mm -hmm. It's a split base uh, rum daiquiri uh, with uh, Nissan Blanc, mm -hmm. uh, which is overproof, at, you know, uh, 100 proof. And then uh, Santa Teresa 1746. So. Very nice. Yeah. Um, and the idea being that... Um, we were, and it's so funny because you look back at your, you know, earlier self, your less mature self, and I was just so obsessed with all these super flavorful, crazy rums, um, and just so dismissive of some of these more mild, aged, more neutral rums, and they really needed each other yeah, <laughs> to yeah. make the cocktail excel. And um, I think what the net result is, it's an even split, by the way. So one ounce, one ounce, and then interestingly enough, um, full ounce of lime as well. Okay. So um, when you taste it together, they just absolutely iron out each other's deficiencies, mm -hmm. but also lift each other's strengths. And it's, it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I drink a lot of, you know, a lot of times I'll go into a bar and I'll, order a daiquiri or whatever and i'll get an agricole daiquiri and it's good it's really good yeah but it's not quite the luxury of having both of those, both of side those together side. and it's great to just be able to, to yeah to, to to pull those two different components into one harmonious blend so then we're going on to one ounce of lime juice tell us Tell us everything you would like to about lime juice or your theories towards it, any any, any kind of practices. Mm -hmm. Obviously, fresh is best, but yep. anything else? You know, I tried, first of all, I should say that I did try just doing a two, three quarter, three quarter, or yes. a one, one, three quarter, three quarter in this case. Um, and while balanced, it 
still was getting slightly buried under the rum, and I just wanted more acid and high sort of high tone notes yes. to it. Um, so we ended up, you know, I figured it out, and the answer was to up the rum to a full ounce and then use a heavier simple syrup. Mm-hmm. To your point about, or your question about uh, lime, um, you know, <laughs> those were the days when people were like, you know, uh, testing the decay rate of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the oxidization rate of lime <laughs> hour by hour, you know. And so I listened to those conversations and I sure I let them impact my thinking. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I do feel like there's a sweet spot where, if, you know, lime juice is juiced the day of within, you know, eight hours of service or something i think mm-hmm. that that is a safe time zone. And we have to be practical here you know we're, oh we're, we're running a business you know <laughs> exactly. labor and and whatnot you know you, you can't be dialing into these things too much of course it's in, yeah. it's incredible the information's out there and that people are doing it it says sure. it says something else but yeah and i also at times you know back when i was constantly behind the bar and we would have some sort of an, a vip whether industry or otherwise um you know, and I wanted to make them a daiquiri, I would get out my hand press juicer and juice to order right there. Yeah. Stop what I'm doing in service and juice to order. And I have made myself that daiquiri a couple of times, and I don't think I find it superior. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if if this is a drink that you know so intimately, too, that you've made so often for yourself, then, you know, it stands to reason that someone else is not going to notice that. So. They're not going to notice. And also just the uniqueness of our own, you know, rum split. Everything yeah. will be the showstopper, hopefully. And then the simple. So you're saying we're going on a on a, on a a heavier dose of simple here. What does that look like, and how did you arrive there? So I was just thinking a lot about mouthfeel and texture, and I find that I work a lot with two-to-one uh, ratio of simple syrups, whether they be white sugar or... Demerara, um, and I, you know, I wanted to use Demerara at some point. Some part of my heart or soul wanted to use a better, uh, less refined sugar. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it again just sort of starts to bury the drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I also tried working with, you know, um, cane de syrup uh, from Martinique. That's actually, you know, the byproduct of the same. Keen that which would be a wonderfully from. romantic notion if it worked incredible and i will say that at our other restaurant savage mm-hmm. we did a slightly different daiquiri with a slightly different rum split that used the keen syrup and it was more of a statement you know and it wasn't so much a palate like like it wasn't trying to just shock your palate into this like you yeah. know the best daiquiri i've ever had zone yeah. it was more about like terroir and like experiencing this whole notion got of it like a narrative there exactly and this, but it did not work for the Maison or what I wanted the Maison daiquiri to be. Yeah. So um, I ended up just going with two to one uh, white simple syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, full ounce of lime. Mm-hmm. And it was just absolutely, the second I shook that first one, I, it was, I absolutely knew it. <laughs> Amazing. Love at first sight. Yes. So one, one, um, one, three quarters. Is Half. The, well, half. Yes, sorry. Perfect. One, 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 half. One, it's one, one, half. It's a bizarro sounding. That's a crazy, the, yeah, yeah that is a, that's a crazy ratio right there, but one that I immediately want to go and try at home. You mentioned texture uh, when it comes to the simple here. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is a shaken drink. 
and the shaking process itself is having a profound impact on texture. So tell us about that. Tell us about ice and shaking and anything else there. Sure. Um, and again, I would underscore that there's lots of you know great daiquiris out there at this point. I'm sure there's you know many ways to skin a cat, as as the saying goes, mm-hmm. but. I very, very, very much was an early adopter of, uh, I think, for New York, um, of cobbler shakers. I mean, I only say <laughs> it so confidently because I, you know, got a lot of funny looks and uh, <laughs> snarky comments for many years um, using um, cobbler shakers beyond the bar. And, of course, they have a, you know, sometimes they have a bad reputation because they're three pieces and they stick together. Well, mm-hmm. the thing is, is if you buy a good cobbler shaker, buy a notable... <laughs> producer like Yukiwa or something. Yeah. Uh, it is tooled and engineered to be used every day for, you know, 50 <laughs> years. So it's it's fine. You're going to be fine. You just have to learn how to use it. Um, and so without getting into all the ways of using a cobbler shaker, I love it for a daiquiri because it is a tr- it really takes out a lot of the variables. If you think about it, a cobbler shaker has a small interior space. Uh, most most cobbler shakers have, you know, a smaller space than yes. Boston. Um and so you are really able automatically to ice it the same every time. And the very motion of using a cobbler shaker, even, you know, doesn't matter if you're Japanese hard shake or Eastern European hard shake or what I call my American hard shake. Um, it doesn't matter. It's still just a very controlled, similar fluid motion. And you're not really tempted to deviate it from it in a way that you might be with a Boston shaker. Also, Maison is a very small bar yes to be behind and i find that you have a smaller footprint as a bartender shaking with a cobbler shaker yep. than you do with a boston a boston is almost a full body motion mm-hmm. um so there are just some practical elements and then there's stylistic elements why i prefer cobbler shaker i guess to me the biggest reason is that and this is some sacred territory um i do not like a fine strain daiquiri Okay. And it is a rare exception to, you know, that sort of thinking of um, keeping ice shards out of of a drink. But when shaking, especially our daiquiri, which is a very sort of, you know, it is grassy, even though it is still ironed out, like I said earlier, by the, you know, sort of buttery richness of Santa Teresa, it is also still very, very grassy and vegetal. Yeah. And when you combine that with little shards of ice it really takes you somewhere. I don't, it's an intangible and mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it beyond how I'm saying it. Um, but it is one of maybe two or three drinks in the classic canon that I am just fiercely, staunchly opposed to fine straining. That's excellent. And the cobbler has those perfect holes at the top, which allow yeah. perfect size shards. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. As someone who has never spent any time behind a bar professionally, but spends a lot of time <laughs> in front of it, you have both the better job. professionally and otherwise. <laughs> I think the cobbler also just sounds better when it's being shaken. 100%. 100%. It sounds so good. And you good. can hear this. Uh, so you know how I said that if you buy a, a good cobbler? Yeah. <laughs> um, you can hear Yukiwa cobblers shaking from down the street on Bedford Avenue. On a summer <laughs> night at Mason Premier, and it, and you can hear them from upstairs, and you know, and I've watched this. I've watched other bartend, you know, bartenders who've trained with us go on to other bars, and you know, continue to 
sort of use some of our uh, techniques and such, and you can tell when you're in another bar and you hear a Maison Premier bartender shaking. That's hilarious. And it's very unique to the cobbler and to the style of shake that we employ. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like um, if you ever play tennis or um, uh, ping pong or you know, it's sports like that, racket sports, uh, it's almost like the motion of a backhand where yeah. you're – um, dominant hand is just guiding the cobbler shaker, and your other hand is sort of leading it in sort of a, in a backhanded almost slap. That's and so incredible. you get this click of the ice that's it's very the, loud. It's the click. It's like, wait, is the guy's watch hammering on the thing yeah. by accident? <laughs> but thank you very much for describing that, because when you mentioned the, your, your, your style of shaking earlier, for a minute I was going to ask you to, and I'm like, no, that's unfair via an audio medium like that's a very unfair ask but i think you did a very good job there of just explaining that i'm, so I'm happy you. to yeah i will give one further tip for anybody out there who is interested in taking a cobbler shaker home and practicing and trying to get more proficient with it the trick that we use at maison premiere is to take a bottle cap like a beer bottle cap and put it in the shaker and try to get that click with just that one bottle cap in the shaker and it will really force you to focus uh, clean energy, mm-hmm. and 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 you're in. It'll really just shape your motion, mm-hmm. basically, of how you shake it. And are you using cold draft cubes for we this? We Any, a specific number or basically, um, I would if I had to guess a number, I would say eight. But yeah. it fit. It fills the same wash line every time. Yeah. And sometimes you know, cold draft cubes are in various states of decay. Obviously, I always try to. Pick, you know, I, I force all of our bartenders <laughs> against their will to use tongs to for every for icing anything, even for their shaker or for their for their mixing glass, because it chooses you to consciously pick good right. ice um, and Present. not decaying, falling apart ice cube. So you know the luxury is we have cold draft machines and they're amazing, but mm-hmm. the downside is is that sometimes some of the cubes are really bad. Yeah. So you do have to get kind of nerdy and specific in that way. And but it's a round eight and it's to a certain wash line. Exactly. And that clicking sound then is that just a product of that mass of ice essentially moving as one, even though they are separate. Exactly. Tim, that, that is good. Interesting. That is very. Never... That's very true, and that is why I say you kind of decrease the variables with a cobbler shaker because you can really just get that those eight cubes to travel together, yeah, and just continually hit and sort of chip on the side at, uh, at the base of the tin, uh, and so you're just chipping it. You're not colliding it or smashing it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, great, great observation. This is a, a, today's episode is a real, I think, addition for the nerds here today with just, no, because... (laughs) Who, me? (laughs) uh, No, I think just some of the things that you're bringing up, you know, avoiding the fine strain, but all of these things, and one thing that runs through everything is this, this, this intention, and you're doing everything with a reason, and it's thought out, and I think that's just basically the foundation of any good cocktail or any good cocktail bar. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I mean, everything needs needs intention. I, yeah. <laughs> I love Japanese bartending for that reason, mm-hmm. you know. And moving on slightly and somewhat, what about riffs? What about, you know, okay, there's one most notable riff, the Hemingway daiquiri. Mm-hmm. Is that something you think too much about, care too much for? I'm going to say I don't particularly like it. Well. Or not I, that I don't like it, sorry. 
I don't think it's the best iteration of this drink. You ask if I've thought too much about it. I did once upon a time think too much about it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's correct. Um, but no, I, you know, I think it's important to try to ponder the what the drink was after in the first place. What did that drink want to be when that drink was invented? Mm-hmm. And can you, you know, give us that brief story there without, you know, going sure. too, too historical, but what's the, what's the background for the Hemingway? Yeah, I mean, obviously it is related to Hemingway and theoretically, you know, had to do with the fact that he was a diabetic and it was like a reduced sugar daiquiri, basically, daiquiri light. Mm-hmm. Um, and daiquiri zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, skinny boy daiquiri. Oh, very nice. So anyway, but, you know, the idea being that Maris Kino was going to be the only sweetener in the drink and that it would just, um, you know, reduce the sugar and that it would be with grapefruit juice, of course. Um, so we have played around and retooled that recipe. And I think it's kind of, for me, I kind of landed on something that reminds me every time I taste it, which isn't that often, but every time I taste a Hemingway Daiquiri Maison Premier, it does kind of make me feel like Hemingway. There is sort of... Um, brash kind of vulgarity to it yeah and part of that comes from we we actually finish the drink with a little tiny like teaspoon of some really crazy ed hamilton rum wow and so it just i mean it's kind of a little rough you know that first sip is a little rough underneath it is a really you know nicely balanced you know grapefruit daiquiri Mm -hmm. um is it a drink I would order all the time? No, not really. But it makes me feel in touch at least with maybe what a good Hemingway yeah. could be. And the, the origins or supposed origins of it and that person and that character, I think that's I think that's a really wonderful way to approach it there that you've done. Yeah, and, and you know, think about his other, I mean, think about Death in the Afternoon and such. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty, that's champagne and absinthe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy was a beast. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, there's only so much you can do given sort of the playbook, the rule book that he, you know, yeah. gave, right. gave us to work with. So, you know, I just try to make the best out of it uh, using great ingredients and then just kind of like let it be what it wants to be. Maybe he was just fucking with everyone. Maybe that was just his aim, right? I think so. Probably. I think so. <laughs> and what about any other riffs that you might have there at uh, Maison Premier that you've either developed or serve a lot? Can you tell us any? I do encourage people to sort of walk through our rum selection um, it just as a sort of template. Order a daiquiri with a certain kind of rum and get to know rum that way. It's a great way to get to know rum. So that's one thing. Um, an actual menu riff that we had, I want to say in, you know, 2015 or 2016 was, uh, called California Condor and people still order it today. It's kind of like a cult, cult classic. Um, it does involve Ed Hamilton's rum, Jamaican black pot still rum. Wow. Um, full ounce of fresh pineapple juice that froths up and gives it a head that looks like an egg white drink. Um, a little bit of, it's a tricky drink. It's very much sort of, um, I am either hyper manipulative to drinks or very non manipulative hands off. Um, and this is the former, not the latter. So this has a lot of little tiny kind of tricks and secrets in it. Um, it has a little bit of saline in it. It has, uh, mole bitters by Bitterman's. Uh, it has, uh, hopped grapefruit bitters by Bitterman's. I'm Mm. also not like a huge, I don't 
stock tons and tons of bitters to yeah. use at my whimsy. I really just a believer in the basic Ango, Ango Orange, and yeah. showed. I'm pretty <laughs> simple in that regard. But this is, again, one of those kind of tricky drinks. So, um, And it also has Santa Teresa again. And I think that speaks to, like, Santa Teresa is really great at sort of, you know, just evening things out. Leveling um, everyone down. Exactly. Um, and then the drink is garnished with just... Um, if you take a dasher, a nice dasher with a dash top, not a cork dash top, but one of the screw-on dash tops, um, there's a kind of fluid motion over over the drink where you can just sort of lace the drink with a, a straight line of bitters. So it has these oh, like nice. stripes on the racing drink. stripe. Exactly. Amazing. Exactly. So uh, yeah, that's a that's one that if somebody was coming into Maison and they wanted to experience rum that's a great mm -hmm. great way to do it and further evidence as well that you know people should not be not saying that anyone is but no one should pigeonhole you as a, as a straight up whiskey gin and absinthe right stirred classics bar you know this is that's that's an adventurous drink right there absolutely I, and i'll tell you a secret by the way since you mentioned whiskey um anyone of from any of my teams over the years could tell you it's probably my least personally ordered uh, spirit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because all these things like rum and Eau de Vie and uh, Claron from Haiti, you know, I mean, Mezcal, obviously, they get me excited because they taste like they come from somewhere. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes whiskey doesn't play that card. I hear you there. So any final thoughts on the daiquiri for today for us? Um, well, there is an adage that it should be gone in three sips. So I, I don't know who came up with that. But I am a big fan <laughs> in drinking yeah. a daiquiri quickly and not nursing yeah. it. And the reason isn't like consumptiveness or just, you know, drinking, drinking. But um, it's that a daiquiri does decay really quickly Yeah. in terms of, um, you know, the second that it's shaken. I mean, it's one drink that actually if somebody orders it in, a dining, in the dining room and it's a VIP and we can do it and have time to do it, then we will go to the table and shake it. Oh, nice. And I don't even like, in a way, I don't like that. I know that sounds crazy for a bar that does performative, you know, like table-side table services. <laughs> yeah. But I don't like the whole shaking table-side thing necessarily just because I'm like, I, I think it's kind of, it can be corny if you're not doing it right. Um, but thankfully our bartenders do it right. And most of all, it's just so important to get that first sip like hot off the shaker or cold off the shaker. Is it Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Will, that's been so wonderful discussing the daiquiri with you. And just, yeah, one thing that I'm taking away is all of those little idiosyncrasies and tweaks. And I'm sure so many people are going to be listening to that and now basically wanting to be going out there and making that for themselves and, and, and trying it using that technique. So thank you for sharing that with us. It's great to discuss it with you, Tim. And as always, we're going to finish the show with our five stock questions. How do you feel? I feel strong. And strong. alive, you chugged a you chugged a matcha latte earlier. I mean, I would ask you, Tim, how's my aura? It's glowing as green <laughs> as that, as green as that latte that you came in with your cha cha. So, <laughs> I think we're in a good place to keep here. <laughs> Fire away. Question number one: What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar bars? Well, um, absinthe, of course you know, is a go-to for a lot of people. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a go-to when we first opened, but a lot's changed. And I think people have started to 
be more educated about absinthe, be more curious about it and try it. Um, secondarily, I would say definitely rum. Yeah. Um, we've always maintained a really, really robust rum section. And now more than ever, it's it's just kind of exploding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we literally yeah, have category. to tuck away bottles onto like shelves that no one can even see because we just have too much rum. Um, personal area of interest of mine has always been Oud V, um, and also unrelated but semi-related geographically. Um, Genope and Herbal Mountain Spirits, obviously Chartreuse. Um, so we have you know about as much of those categories as is available in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would Wonderful. say I would say probably rum though is you know by volume the largest uh, on the shelf, which stands to reason just given those those you know multiple styles that we yes. touched upon earlier. Yes. Question number two: What ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Can I give you an ingredient and a tool? Yes, please. And I don't <laughs> think we often, if ever, get ingredients. So thank oh, you. Oh, good one. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to start with tool and just go for the obvious uh, that I've already spoken a lot about, which is a cobbler shaker. I mm-hmm. think they're just, um, they can be just a superior, deliver superior drink sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's just me. That's my opinion. Um, as far as an ingredient goes, I am a huge fan of um, aged gin, actually. Um, I think there are a lot of classics out there that get a really nice reworking mm-hmm. from using something with a little barrel age. Mm-hmm. And I use that a little bit synonymously with Old Tom mm-hmm. style. So okay. Making Old Tom era drinks with Old Tom is very important. <laughs> and, and so more in that Old Tom in terms of aged and slightly sweet? Or how do you feel? Because I feel like there's something of a proliferation of barrel age or barrel rested gins. Mm-hmm. And the spectrum runs very broad too. You have some that look like they've just kissed the wood and others where I'm like, this is almost young whiskey that we're drinking here. Sure, yeah. And I prefer not, you know, I prefer still, you know, retaining like a sem- some semblance of gin profile. Yes. Uh, and not over... Uh, barreling it or mm-hmm. you know too long in the barrel i guess i would just say that drinks like a tom collins mm-hmm. is such a game changer when you don't use london dry gin um and it's kind of crazy to me how many bars great bars still mm-hmm. use just london dry gin mm-hmm. for the drink um also other you know sort of more obscure drinks like the bijou which is like uh, sweet vermouth chartreuse and gin probably was an old tom era drink yeah and benefits wildly from it mm-hmm. um and you're asking me about whether i mean sweeter or um barrel i think it's a balance of both you know i i won't lie i think a go-to for years of at maison was ransom mm-hmm. uh their yeah. old tom gin was excellent um there's also a great one called liberator um uh, old tom gin american gin um yeah i feel like there's a lot here in, in america it's specifically more, right it's happening yeah, totally. a lot more here in america than i see um from elsewhere 100 percent Hundred percent, but it definitely uh, shifts the profile of the drink. There's like a tension I find with London dry drinks yep. a lot of the times. Um, there are all these botanicals in there, and it's just kind of a little bit tense, and yep. it's not a fun drink to yeah. drink. Loosen up, loosen up, and that <laughs> barrel just kind of relaxes everything. Amazing. Question number three: What's the most important piece of advice you've received in this industry? That's a good question. I I think that. Um, 
being told that, uh, being reminded, as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, drinking history was written by drunk people <laughs> and to not take it too seriously and to forge your own path. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's definitely steered my, uh, ethos about drink making. You know, I just, I cannot get hung up on recipe books. I mean, they inform, but they're just one of many things that informs. Ingredients change and evolve. Yes. Oh my God. So many things change. Mm -hmm. Plant, uh, you know, agriculture changes even, yeah, of course, just like even basics that you wouldn't think that would change like mm -hmm. whiskey or cognac or, you know, harvests are different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these spirits are, are natural products. So yes. we sometimes forget it. Yep. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, which one would it be? I would say that I would go to um, the American bar. Mm -hmm. um, I know that it's not necessarily the hippest or coolest answer. Um, there's a lot of great bars, obviously, all around. Um, I, I guess I just think of, you know, when you think about a room that has accrued so much talent and history over the years, um, if I knew it was last bar I was going to in my life, I'd want to celebrate. Yeah. So yeah. I think I'd want to be there amongst the legends, you know, and um, it's, we're so awesome that uh, our good friend Shantae yeah. is now the head bartender there. Making and history. I've been able to hang out with her recently and saw her making drinks and it was amazing. That's incredible. Final question for today's show. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I would order myself a dry Navy strength gin martini with Old Raj. And I would make myself a daiquiri. We will allow you to do that. <laughs> Hopefully the day isn't soon. <laughs> Give me a heads up. <laughs> will, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a blast. It was a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Let's go enjoy a daiquiri. Sounds good. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>